There are more than 300 episodes of Listen to Sleep, all available for free because of the generous support of our sponsors. And while you'll never hear any ads after the story or meditation starts, you can get every episode ad-free, plus over 100 bonus episodes, all for less than the price of one cup of coffee a month by going to listentosleep.com and clicking on support. Thank you. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep, slow, quiet stories to help you fall asleep. We're heading towards the shortest day of the year. I love it up here, and when the days are short, the sun comes up late and it sets early. It can be a little oppressive sometimes, but most days it's just beautiful. Since we're on a north-facing hillside, there's very little time that the sun actually hits the cabin, and sometime around 3, 3.30, it's gone for the day. I'm looking forward to the days getting longer again, starting next week. I want to thank Tara, thank you so much, Lynn, thank you, and Hannah, thank you. They all joined the Patreon this week at patreon.com slash listen to sleep. And if you'd like to join the Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, you can get the podcast a day early with no ads or introductions, along with a bunch of other perks to help you sleep better. You'll also be helping me live my dream of one day being able to do this as my retirement. It's all at patreon.com slash listen to sleep, and there's a link in the show notes. This week, we're going to try a little something new for the meditation. For a long time, this has been one of my go-to methods for getting to sleep on the nights when my mind is racing. So take a minute to just allow yourself to settle in 
as if you were a stone dropped into a pond, slowly floating to the bottom, finding that resting place, and becoming aware of your breath. Wherever it is you feel your breath most clearly, maybe you notice the rise and fall of your belly or the expansion and contraction of your chest or the feeling at the entrance of your nostrils. Tonight, what we'll be doing is counting our breaths up to 10. And then when you get to 10, you can start again at one. And if you lose track of the breath at any point, just start again at one. So what that will look like is this. Breathing in. Breathing out. One. Breathing in. Breathing out. Two. Breathing in. Breathing out. Three. And you can continue at your own pace, following your own breath and your own timing. If you find yourself losing count, just a reminder that you can start again at one. And don't judge or criticize yourself if you lose count. Each time, just start again, patiently and with gentleness. No need to judge yourself for losing track. So starting again, breathing in, breathing out. One. Breathing in. Breathing out. Two. Following your own breath on your own time. Letting the counting be very soft and quiet in the background. And as you begin to settle, you may start to feel sleepy or drowsy and just allow that sleep to come, letting the counting drift away and letting yourself fall deeply into sleep. Bartleby the Scrivener, Part 4 I believe that this wise and blessed frame of mind would have continued with me had it not been for the unsolicited and uncharitable remarks obtruded upon me by my professional friends who visited the rooms. But thus it often is, and the constant friction of illiberal minds wears out at last the best resolves of the more generous. Though, to be sure, when I reflected upon it, 
It was not strange that people entering my office should be struck by the peculiar aspect of the unaccountable Bartleby. And so be tempted to throw out some sinister observations concerning him. Sometimes an attorney having business with me and calling at my office and finding no one but the scrivener there would undertake to obtain some sort of precise information from him touching my whereabouts. But without heeding his idle talk, Bartleby would remain standing immovable in the middle of the room. So, after contemplating him in that position for a time, the attorney would depart no wiser than he came. Also, when a reference was going on, and the room was full of lawyers and witnesses, and business was driving fast, some deeply occupied legal gentleman present, seeing Bartleby wholly unemployed, would request him to run round to his, the legal gentleman's, office and fetch some papers for him. Thereupon, Bartleby would tranquilly decline and yet remain as idle as before. Then the lawyer would give a great stare and turn to me. And what could I say? At last, I was made aware that all through the circle of my professional acquaintance, a whisper of wonder was running round, having reference to the strange creature I kept at my office. This worried me very much. And as the idea came upon me of his possibly turning out a long-lived man and keep occupying my chambers, and denying my authority, and perplexing my visitors, and scandalizing my professional reputation, and casting a general gloom over the premises, keeping soul and body together to the last upon his savings, for doubtless he spent but half a dime a day, and in the end perhaps outlive me and claim possession of my office by right of his perpetual occupancy. As all these dark anticipations crowded upon me more and more, and my friends continually intruded their relentless remarks upon the apparition in my room, a great change was wrought in me. I resolved to gather all my faculties together, and forever rid me of this intolerable incubus. Ere revolving any complicated project, however, adapted to this end, I first simply suggested to Bartleby the propriety of his permanent departure. In a calm and serious tone, I commended the idea to his careful and mature consideration. But having taken three days to meditate upon it, he apprised me that his original determination remained the same. In short, that he still preferred to abide with me. What shall I do? 
I now said to myself, buttoning up my coat to the last button, What shall I do? What ought I to do? What does conscience say I should do with this man? Or rather, ghost? Rid myself of him. I must. Go, he shall. But how? You will not thrust him, the poor, pale, and passive mortal. You will not thrust such a helpless creature out of your door. You will not dishonor yourself by such cruelty. No, no, I will not. I cannot do that. Rather would I let him live and die here, and then mason up his remains in the wall. What then will you do? For all your coaxing, he will not budge. Bribes he leaves under your own paperweight on your table. In short, it is quite plain that he prefers to cling to you. Then something severe, something unusual must be done. What? Surely you will not have him collared by a constable and commit his innocent pallor to the common jail. And upon what ground could you procure such a thing to be done? A vagrant, is he? What? He a vagrant? A wanderer who refuses to budge? It is because he will not be a vagrant, then, that you seek to count him as a vagrant. That is too absurd. No visible means of support. There, I have him. Wrong again, for indubitably he does support himself, and that is the only answerable proof that any man can show of his possessing the means so to do. No more, then. Since he will not quit me, I must quit him. I will change my offices. I will move elsewhere and give him fair notice that if I find him on my new premises, I will then proceed against him as a common trespasser. Acting accordingly, next day I thus addressed him. I find these chambers too far from the city hall. The air is unwholesome. In a word, I propose to remove my offices next week and shall no longer require your services. I tell you this now in order that you may seek another place. He made no reply, and nothing more was said. On the appointed day, I engaged carts and men, proceeded to my chambers, and having but little furniture, Everything was removed in a few hours. Throughout, the Scrivener remained standing behind the screen, which I directed to be removed the last thing. It was withdrawn, and being folded up like a huge folio, left him the motionless occupant of a naked room.
I stood in the entry watching him a moment, while something from within me upbraided him. I re-entered with my hand in my pocket and, and my heart in my mouth. Goodbye, Bartleby. I am going. Goodbye, and God some way bless you, and take that, slipping something into his hand. But it dropped to the floor, and then, strange to say, I tore myself from him who I had so longed to be rid of. Established in my new quarters, for a day or two I kept the door locked and started at every footfall in the passages. When I returned to my rooms after any little absence, I would pause at the threshold for an instant and attentively listen ere applying my key. But these fears were needless. Bartleby never came nigh me. I thought all was going well when a perturbed-looking stranger visited me, inquiring whether I was the person who had recently occupied my old rooms on Wall Street. Full of forebodings, I replied that I was. Then, sir, said the stranger, who proved a lawyer, you are responsible for the man you left there. He refuses to do any copying. He refuses to do anything. He says he prefers not to, and he refuses to quit the premises. I am very sorry, sir, said I, with assumed tranquility, but an inward tremor. But really, the man you allude to is nothing to me. He is no relation or apprentice of mine that you should hold me responsible for him. In mercy's name, who is he? I certainly cannot inform you. I know nothing about him. Formerly, I employed him as a copyist, but he has done nothing for me now for some time past. I shall settle him then. Good morning, sir. Several days passed, and I heard nothing more. And though I often felt a charitable prompting to call at the place and see poor Bartleby, yet a certain squeamishness of I know not what withheld me. All is over with him by this time, I thought at last, when through another week no further intelligence reached me. But coming to my room the day after, I found several persons waiting at my door in a high state of nervous excitement. That's the man. Here he comes, cried the foremost one, whom I recognized as the lawyer who had previously called upon me alone. You must take him away, sir, at once, cried a portly person among them advancing upon me, and whom I knew to be the landlord of my old premises. These gentlemen, my tenants, cannot stand it any longer. Mr. B., pointing to the lawyer, 
has turned him out of his room, and he now persists in haunting the building generally, sitting upon the banisters of the stairs by day and sleeping in the entry by night. Everybody is concerned. Clients are leaving the offices. Some fears are entertained of a mob. Something you must do, and that without delay. Aghast at this torrent, I fell back before it and would fain have locked myself in my new quarters. In vain, I persisted that Bartleby was nothing to me, no more than to anyone else. In vain, I was the last person known to have anything to do with him, and they held me to the terrible account. Fearful, then, of being exposed in the papers, as one person present obscurely threatened, I considered the matter, and at length said that if the lawyer would give me a confidential interview with the scrivener in his, the lawyer's, own room, I would that afternoon strive my best to rid them of the nuisance they complained of. Going upstairs to my old haunt, there was Bartleby, silently sitting upon the banister at the landing. What are you doing here, Bartleby? said I. Sitting upon the banister, he mildly replied. I motioned him into the lawyer's room, who then left us. Bartleby, said I, are you aware that you are the cause of great tribulation to me by persisting in occupying the entry after being dismissed from the office. No answer. Now, one of two things must take place. Either you must do something, or something must be done to you. Now, what sort of business would you like to engage in? Would you like to re-engage in copying for someone? No, I would prefer not to make any change. Would you like a clerkship in a dry goods store? There is too much confinement about that. No, I would not like a clerkship, but I am not particular. Too much confinement, I cried. Why, you keep yourself confined all the time. I would prefer not to take a clerkship, he rejoined, as if to settle that little item at once. How would a bartender's business suit you? There is no trying of the eyesight in that. I would not like it at all, though, as I said before, I am not particular. His unwanted wordiness inspirited me. I returned to the charge. Well, then, would you like to travel through the country, collecting bills for the merchants? That would improve your health. No, I would prefer to be doing something else. 
How then would going as a companion to Europe to entertain some young gentleman with your conversation, how would that suit you? Not at all. It does not strike me that there is anything definite about that. I like to be stationary. But I am not particular. Stationary you shall be then, I cried, now losing all patience. And for the first time in all my exasperating connection with him, fairly flying into a passion. If you do not go away from these premises before night, I shall feel bound. Indeed, I am bound to, to, to quit the premises myself. I rather absurdly concluded, knowing not with what possible threat to try to frighten his immobility into compliance. Despairing of all further efforts, I was precipitately leaving him when a final thought occurred to me, one which had not been wholly indulged before. Bartleby, said I, in the kindest tone I could assume under such exciting circumstances, will you go home with me now, not to my office, but my dwelling, and remain there till we can conclude upon some convenient arrangement for you at our leisure. Come, let us start now, right away. No, at present I would prefer not to make any change at all. I answered nothing but effectually dodging everyone by the suddenness and rapidity of my flight, rushed from the building, ran up Wall Street towards Broadway, and jumping into the first omnibus, was soon removed from pursuit. As soon as tranquility returned, I distinctly perceived that I had now done all that I possibly could both in respect to the demands of the landlord and his tenants, and with regard to my own desire and sense of duty to benefit Bartleby and shield him from rude persecution. I now strove to be entirely carefree and quiescent, and my conscience justified me in the attempt, though indeed it was not so successful as I could have wished. So fearful was I of being again hunted out by the incensed landlord and his exasperated tenants that, surrendering my business to nippers, for a few days I drove about the upper part of town and through the suburbs in my rockaway, crossed over to Jersey City and Hoboken, and paid fugitive visits to Manhattanville and Astoria. In fact, I almost lived in my rockaway for the time. When again I entered my office, lo, a note from the landlord lay upon the desk. I opened it with trembling hands. It informed me that the writer had sent to the police 
and had Bartleby removed to the tombs as a vagrant. Moreover, since I knew more about him than anyone else, he wished me to appear at that place and make a suitable statement of the facts. These tidings had a conflicting effect upon me. At first, I was indignant, but at last almost approved. The landlord's energetic summary disposition had led him to adopt a procedure which I do not think I would have decided upon myself. And yet, as a last resort, under such peculiar circumstances, it seemed the only plan. As I afterwards learned, the poor Scrivener, when told that he must be conducted to the tombs, offered not the slightest obstacle but in his pale, unmoving way, simply acquiesced. Some of the compassionate and curious bystanders joined the party, and headed by one of the constables arm-in-arm with Bartleby, the silent procession filed its way through all the noise and heat and joy of the roaring thoroughfares at noon. The same day I received the note, I went to the tombs, or to speak more properly, the halls of justice. Seeking the right officer, I stated the purpose of my call, and was informed that the individual I described was indeed within. I then assured the functionary that Bartleby was a perfectly honest man, and greatly to be compassionated, however unaccountably eccentric. I narrated all I knew, and closed by suggesting the idea of letting him remain in as indulgent confinement as possible till something less harsh might be done, though indeed I hardly knew what. At all events, if nothing else could be decided upon, the almshouse must receive him. I then begged to have an interview. Being under no disgraceful charge, and quite serene and harmless in all his ways, they had permitted him freely to wander about the prison, and especially in the enclosed grass-platted yard thereof. And so I found him there, standing all alone in the quietest of the yards, his face towards a high wall, while all around from the narrow slits of the jail windows, I thought I saw peering out upon him the eyes of murderers and thieves. Bartleby, I know you, he said, without looking round, and I want nothing to say to you. It was not I that brought you here, Bartleby, said I keenly pained at his implied suspicion. And to you, this should not be so vile a place. Nothing reproachful attaches to you by being here. And see, it is not so sad a place as one might think. Look, there is sky, and here is the grass. I know where I am, he replied, but would say nothing more 
and so I left him. As I entered the corridor again, a broad, meat-like man in an apron accosted me, and jerking his thumb over his shoulder said, Is that your friend? Yes. Does he want to starve? If he does, let him live on the prison's fare, that's all. Who are you? asked I, not knowing what to make of such an unofficially speaking person in such a place. I am the grub man. Such gentlemen as have friends here hire me to provide them with something good to eat. Is this so? said I, turning to the turnkey. He said it was. Well then, said I, slipping some silver into the grub man's hands, for so they called him, I want you to give particular attention to my friend there. Let him have the best dinner you can get, and you must be as polite to him as possible. Introduce me, will you? said the grub man looking at me with an expression which seemed to say he was all impatience for an opportunity to give a specimen of his breeding. Thinking it would prove to benefit to the Scrivener, I acquiesced, and asking the grubman his name, went up with him to Bartleby. Bartleby, this is Mr. Cutlets. You will find him very useful to you. Your servant, sir, your servant, said the grub man, making a low salutation upon his apron. Hope you find it pleasant here, sir. Spacious grounds, cool apartments, sir. Hope you'll stay with us some time. Try to make it agreeable. May Mrs. Cutlets and I have the pleasure of your company to dinner, sir, in Mrs. Cutlets's private room. I prefer not to dine today, said Bartleby, turning away. It would disagree with me. I am unused to dinners. So saying, he slowly moved to the other side of the enclosure and took up a position fronting the dead wall. How's this? said the grub man, addressing me with a stare of astonishment. He's odd, ain't he? I think he is a little deranged, said I, sadly. Deranged, deranged, is it? Well, now, upon my word, I thought that friend of yourn was a gentleman forger. They are always pale and genteel like them forgers. I can't pity him, can't help it, sir. Did you know Monroe Edwards? He added touchingly and paused. Then, laying his hand pityingly upon my shoulder, sighed. He died of consumption at Sing Sing. So you weren't acquainted with Monroe? No, I was never socially acquainted with any forgers. But I cannot stop longer. Look to my friend yonder. You will not lose by it. I will see you again. Some few days after this, I again obtained admission to the tombs, 
and went through the corridors in quest of Bartleby, but without finding him. I saw him coming from his cell not long ago, said a turnkey, but maybe he's gone to loiter in the yards. So I went in that direction. Are you looking for the silent man, said another turnkey passing me. Yonder he lies, sleeping in the yard there. Tis not twenty minutes since I saw him lie down. The yard was entirely quiet. It was not accessible to the common prisoners. The surrounding walls, of amazing thickness, kept off all sounds behind them. The Egyptian character of the masonry weighed upon me with its gloom, but a soft imprisoned turf grew underfoot. The heart of the eternal pyramids, it seemed, wherein, by some strange magic, through the clefts, grass seed, dropped by birds, had sprung. Strangely huddled at the base of the wall, his knees drawn up and lying on his side, his head touching the cold stones, I saw the wasted Bartleby. But nothing stirred. I paused, then went close up to him, stooped over, and saw that his dim eyes were open. Otherwise, he seemed profoundly sleeping. Something prompted me to touch him. I felt his hand when a tingling shiver ran up my arm and down my spine to my feet. The round face of the grub man peered upon me now. His dinner is ready. Won't he dine today either? Or does he live without dining? Lives without dining, said I, and closed his eyes. Hey, he's asleep, ain't he? with kings and counselors, murmured I. There would seem little need for proceeding further in this history. Imagination will readily supply the meager recital of poor Bartleby's interment. But ere parting with the reader, let me say that if this little narrative has sufficiently interested them to awaken curiosity as to who Bartleby was and what manner of life he led prior to the present narrator's making his acquaintance. I can only reply that in such curiosity I fully share, but I am wholly unable to gratify it. Yet here I hardly know whether I should divulge one little item of rumor which came to my ear a few months after the Scrivener's decease. Upon what basis it rested, I could never ascertain, and hence how true it is, I cannot now tell. But inasmuch as this vague report has not been without certain strange suggestive interest to me, however sad, it may prove the same with some others. And so, I will briefly mention it. The report was this, that Bartleby had been a subordinate clerk 
in the dead letter office at Washington, from which he had been suddenly removed by a change in the administration. When I think over this rumor, I cannot adequately express the emotions which seize me. Dead letters? Does it not sound like dead men? Conceive a man by nature and misfortune prone to pallid hopelessness. Can any business seem more fitted to heighten it than that of continually handling these dead letters and assorting them for the flames? For by the cartload they are annually burned, sometimes from out the folded paper the pale clerk takes a ring. The finger it was meant for, perhaps, molders in the grave. A banknote sent in swiftest charity. He whom it would relieve, nor eats, nor hungers any more. Pardon for those who died despairing. Hope for those who died unhoping. Good tidings for those who died stifled by unrelieved calamities. On errands of life, these letters speed to death. Ah, Bartleby. Ah, humanity. Good night.